Today I'll be preaching from the book of Micah, chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. And I'll be reading verses 14 down to verse number 20. Micah chapter 7 and verse 14. The Bible says, Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old, according to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sown unto our fathers from the days of old. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing love towards us. Thank you for demonstrating that in the ultimate sacrificial way by going to the cross and bearing sins of all humanity. Thank you for such love. I pray today, dear Lord, as your word goes forth, that that love would resonate in each and every heart and in each and every life and that each person would embrace it completely, recognizing that your love is what we need. Thank you so much for reaching down to us, making a way by which we can be restored in the right relationship with you. I pray today that you would meet the needs that exist upon hearts, those who are hurting, every hurting heart and every hurting soul, feel the abundance of your love. Thank you once again for what you're doing in our lives we know that you're working for your glory and for our good. Give me the words you'll have me to say. May they be a source of strength and encouragement. Each person, under the sound of my voice, save some lost soul, stir the hearts of every believer, and we'll be careful to thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. If you have watched courtroom dramas on television or you've had the opportunity to witness and follow a court case in person, you would notice, if you pay close attention, that the judge and the jury, and even at times observers, 
would often pay attention, close attention, to the demeanor of the defendant to gauge their response to what is being brought by way of accusation. In the event that it is clear and determined that the individual is guilty, I personally often pay attention to the response once the verdict is given and the sentence is determined. It's because as I observe this courtroom and the defendant in particular, I'm trying to get some insight into whether there is remorse or not, whether there is despair or not, despair that the right verdict was not arrived at. The individual's response to the judgment gives an indication of what will take place in the days ahead, in the weeks ahead, in the months ahead, in the years ahead, by way of personal change, or whether there might be a continued adamance that the verdict was wrong. The God of the universe corrects his children. He does so by way of discipline. We've seen this in Hebrews chapter 12. It's pointed out there very clearly. But God deals with his children in such a manner because of his love. It's not the way we often want to experience the love of God. But verse number 6 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. I mean, that word scourge, I mean, it sounds real rough, doesn't it? But the Bible is saying that God disciplines and corrects those he loves. Now, God loves all humanity. But he deals with his children in a particular way. However, unlike human institutions and entities, God's judgment and discipline is always just. We never have to worry about whether God has made a mistake in his judgment. And so when it comes to this matter of discipline and receiving correction from a just God, from a holy God, from a righteous God, our focus as his children, are not to be whether the discipline is fair, but our response ought to be, or question rather, what is our response to the discipline? What is our response to the correction? I began a message last week entitled, Responding to the Rod of Correction. Responding to the Rod of Correction. In our text in Micah chapter 7, God, of course, the backdrop to this and the context is that God had brought judgment upon his people, Israel, for their rebellion. And chapter 7 shows us the response of the prophet Micah to God's judgment. 
And we emphasize this and we zone in on this by way of this message because firmly I believe and I'm sure you can attest with me and agree that the proper response to the correction is critical in getting on the right path and seeing lasting change. By way of review, we noticed in verses 1 to 6 that this chastisement from God was because of sin. We saw in verse number 1, Micah says, Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the grapeling gleanings of the vintage, there is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. Let's understand what this judgment was, what this discipline was, what was the form of correction. It was the fact that there was a scarcity of people who were righteous. Verse number two says, the good man is perished out of the earth. So imagine God judges his people by there being an absence of righteous people. We notice in verses 3 to 4 that selfish practices were rampant. When there were no righteous people to be found, everybody is simply looking about themselves. And as a result, they were suffering personal relationships. Verse number five says, trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. I listen, uh, the doors of thy mouth, keep it from even that person who lies in your bosom. Not even the spouse you can trust. What a dire situation. The son dishonoreth the father. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. That's the chastisement of God and it is the direct result of sin. But notice amidst all this, amidst all this chaos, amidst all this despair, we observed the confidence of the servant. This is very important. The response to this correction We notice in verses 7 down to verse number 13 that that in response to this correction, uh, the the, the prophet says, Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. We saw that was critical. What was essential to having a right attitude amidst the chastisement that this servant had to know that this great God that was correcting me, that was chastising me, was my God. That's my father. There was a personal relationship. As a result, he looked forward to the restoration of God. In verse number 8, he says, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. Listen, this God is not trying to destroy me. This God will, in fact, restore me. Restoration. And there was a realization in verses 9 and 10. That what had come about was a result of my own personal error. You know, when we recognize that we are to blame, it changes the mindset. 
He says also that my enemy shall see it. And shame shall come over her. Why? He's looking forward to the fact that God is going to bring about a change. We notice in the context of this passage that they were going to look forward to a regathering. Why? The children of Israel were scattered. They were under captivity. And that God had already promised that after 70 years of Babylonian captivity that he will restore them to their nation, to their homeland. He relied on the promises of God. But notice very soberingly in verse number 13, there's a reminder. Notwithstanding that the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. My friend, we must understand that despite of the fact that God is a loving God, that God is a gracious God, that there are consequences for sin that are lasting. That reminder we saw in verse number 13. But I want us to notice thirdly here today, very interestingly in verse number 14, Understand the context. There is chastisement for sin. There is the confidence of the servant. And then God gives a command to serve in verse number 14. Now, think of the fact that here you have God's child, God's people, as it were, could resort to licking their wounds I mean, I just got chastised. I, I got, just got disciplined. I, I doesn't feel good. I'm feeling down and out. But God gives a command to serve. Look at verse number 14. Feed thy people with thy rod. The flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Here's what God is saying to us. We're talking about the response, the correct response to chastisement, the response to the rod of correction. And here's what often happens, that when God corrects, when God deals with us in form of discipline, We often want to run in a corner and go and hide. God is saying, that is the time, my friend, to be diligent in ministry. He says, now that you are experiencing correction, it's not the time to go in a corner and to pout and to hide and to push up your face. It is the time to get busy about what you should be doing all along. You know, the best way to get out of discouragement and depression about your own problems is to focus on ministering to somebody else. I I know it seems like a paradox. We often think, I got my own problems. I can't help a soul. But what is being addressed here is not having a selfish or self-centered attitude where it's all about me and my problems. Look to minister to somebody else and I tell you, mark it down. Those who endeavor to minister to other people in spite of their own problems, and let me also interject this, we all got problems. I'm not minimizing yours. 
I'm just telling you, problems are, are germane to the human existence. But the people who engage are not being self-centered and focusing on the needs of others to minister to them uh, in the Lord's business. God says, feed the flock. Those are the happiest people. I mean, here you have the prophet experiencing the judgment, the discipline of God, and his enemies are laughing him to scorn. Yet God says, feed the flock. And God is saying our response to correction is simply this. When you are facing discipline, is not the time to quit. He's saying to us by way of this passage that we have a responsibility to individuals who are depending on us to get right and to be right. Look at the verse again. He says, feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage which dwells solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Here's here's what we must understand. Listen, whenever we fail to do the job that God has placed on our hearts and our minds to do, when we fail to do it, other people are affected negatively. Whether we're facing discipline or not, whenever we don't continue to minister, guess what? Somebody fails to be fed. Somebody fails to be blessed. Somebody fails to be encouraged. And notice he's speaking to him, ministering to a specific group. He he says, the flock of thine heritage, these are not random people, which dwell solitarily in the wood in the midst of Carmel. A specific group of people in a specific place. My friend, God has a specific responsibility for you. Will you continue when you're disciplined? That is the right response. Will you continue in your ministry when somebody said something you didn't like? Will you continue in your ministry when Somebody didn't show appreciation for what you did? Will you continue serving when somebody, or maybe I should say people, because sometimes it seems like more than one, gets on your nerves? It's often difficult, isn't it? But that's the time, my friend, to feed the flock. That's the time to embrace the responsibility of ministry. There's a command to serve. He says, be diligent in ministry. And in order to do so, it's going to require a decisive mindset. I love what he says here. He says, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. You know what God was saying here? I'm giving you a specific instruction. Do it and do it 
right. Do it to the best of your ability. Don't have them feed in any old place. Carry them in a place where there is food, where there is nourishment. Take some effort and time to give them the best that there is. When you engage in the work of God by way of ministry, God is simply saying, and he says it all throughout his word, don't just do it for doing its sake. I reject that kind of stuff. Growing up as a young person in our home, I admit, and to my children, I I give a precursor by saying, you will not get off as a result of what I'm about to say. But my mom used to say to me and my sister, as it relates to the dishes, well, you all look like you all gave these dishes a liquid out of promise. And what she was saying is that you all just rush through like you all couldn't care less whether they're clean or not. Like I said, you all not going to get away because I admitted that this morning, all right? But when it comes to this matter of ministry, Do it in a God-honoring way. Do it for the benefit of those who are being ministered to. Do it in alignment with God's word. This command to serve is, is being given in the middle of discipline. Being administered. But notice, God always gives us What ought to be our motivation? Look at verse number 15. He says, I'm giving you a command to serve. But notice, if you embrace this command to serve, you will experience the consequence of success. He says in verse number 15, I love this. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. Now, God is hearkening back to the days when they were in Egypt, when they were in bondage. And God is simply saying to them, you remember what I did when I brought you across the Red Sea, when I, when I destroyed the, your enemies, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He says, just remember that. That's the magnitude on which I will provide you some marvelous deliverance. I will provide you some marvelous blessings if you simply embrace serving me. You have the right response to correction. I'm going to bless you abundantly. I will deliver you. I will take care of your enemies. I will bring you back to your homeland. And when I do what I do, everyone around will know that my hand is upon you. You're in captivity now. You feel like you're down and out now. But I'm still the same God. And this God is promising his deliverance. My friend, when God promises his blessings, when God promises his deliverance, that is enough reason not to quit. So rather than retreat in a corner, God says, get up and feed the flock.
there's a consequence of success. But notice, fifthly, as a result of that success, it will result in the confounding of the scoffers. Look at verse 16. It says, the nation shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth and their ears shall be deaf. In other words, the same people who were ridiculing, the same people who were mocking, the same people were saying, oh, ha, 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 his God is not a good God. Oh, ha, ha, his God is, is, is done. His God is over. His God, I mean, he's done for. Listen, God, Bible says that by way of God's blessings upon your life, they will be perplexed. They shall see and be confounded. In other words, they won't be able to figure out how has God brought about this transformation in your life. They'll be scratching their heads. They'll be confused. They shall lay their hands upon their mouths. Like when somebody said, what just happened? They will be shocked, unable to comprehend they'll be perplexed. And because they're perplexed and because they're confused, they'll be petrified. Look at verse number 17. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. Here's what's happening. There's an unexpected and unprecedented event. And we know that even the Bible uses the example of worms. Uh, uh, there's a, a flood or whatever it is, uh, unexpected. And these worms run out of the place that they thought was safe. It's kind of like us when we're facing a hurricane. And we don't think our homes are safe when we go to a shelter. Or there's an earthquake or a volcano. And we run from where we normally would abode to another place of safety. Because our, our power demonstrated that's beyond our capacity. That causes us to be afraid. Here's what the Bible is saying. That when these scoffers who mocked. When they see God's mighty hand at work upon your life. Guess what? They're going to realize that this God is a real God. This God is a faithful God. And they themselves will run for cover. The confounding of the scoffers. But notice this, and I love this. This realization in verses 18 to 20 is what kept the writer even keeled throughout everything that was going on. It's the foundation, it's the essence of responding with the right attitude to correction. He understood the character of the sovereign. Look at verse number 18. He says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. 
My friend, the reason why we ought to respond appropriately to the corrective hand of Almighty God is because God is a merciful God. He is merciful. Jot this down to the transgressor. The Bible says God delights in mercy. When you think of the messed up stuff that we do, when you think of how messed up we are, we are to all collectively say, God is a merciful God. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22 says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. And oftentimes, I believe, and self-admittedly, that we take the mercy of God for granted. But I want you to understand something very important about God's mercy. Because as the writer describes it here by way of a question in verse number 18, don't miss this. He says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? That's a very important phrase there. That pardoneth iniquity. You see, we think of God's mercy as just out there and God is merciful and so he won't come down as hard on me as he will because he's just a merciful God. But here is when God's mercy is most apparent and most realized and personally experienced when we request his pardon. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. My friend, when it comes to experiencing the mercy of God, God demonstrates that mercy in the most uh, real way and uh, in, the, in the fashion that it is embraced and experienced by us when we come to him in repentance. Psalm 136, we don't have the time to read all those verses. That's why it says almost after every verse, for his mercy endureth forever. For his mercy endureth forever. For his mercy endureth forever. It is because of the realization and the understanding of that mercy why we ought to have the proper attitude and response to correction because we understand that in having the right response God will be merciful but not to take that mercy for granted notice in examining and understanding the character of the sovereign that there are two things at play here 
God is merciful to the transgressor. But notice, even in doing so, God maintains truth. Now verse 19 continues describing God's mercy and I want to read it. He says he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. But notice the first part of verse number 20. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham. There are a number of times in the Bible and this is one example in verse number 20 that the words mercy and truth are found together. They're like twins. They're tied at the hip. Look at Psalm number 85. Very important that we understand this because when we come to the character of God, we are often quick to be able to want to uh, access and apply to the mercy of God. But God's mercy does not exist in a vacuum. Psalm 85 and verse number 10 says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalm 86, not too far from there, and verse 15. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. Psalm 100 and verse 5, very familiar psalm to all of us. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. My friend, it's important that we understand when it comes to the character of this sovereign God, that God perfectly balances mercy and truth at the same time. Which means that even as he is a merciful God, he is also a just God. That is why in his mercy, he must address sin because of truth. His mercy must coexist with his justice, truth, what is right. These are foundational to his character. And that is why a person who sins habitually, continually, because of a false perception of God's mercy does not understand the true nature and character of God. I want to draw your attention very quickly and we're almost done here. But I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 10. We read a few verses during the scripture reading. But I want you to notice the following verses where we left off. I hope you are paying close attention because it's important that we understand God's character. Look at verse number 26 of chapter 10. 
after the verses prior emphasizes the new covenant and this sacrifice and this offering that has come about as a result of Jesus dying on a rugged cross. Verse 26 says, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy on the two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose he shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under the foot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace what God is saying is my mercy is so abundant my mercy is demonstrated by sending my son to this earth to die on Calvary's cross for your sins my mercy endures forever when you look at the provision that I've made by way of my son but I'm also a just God. And after providing that amazing provision by way of mercy and grace, if if you reject such a sacrifice, how shall you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? God's character is grounded in mercy and truth. But notice finally, back in Micah chapter 7, in the latter part of verse 20, notice the prophet had the right response to correction because he knew way back, thousands of years before, there was a covenant that was settled. In verse number 20, he says, Thou will perform to truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, look at this, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Back in Genesis, God had made a covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that he would keep pertaining to the children of Israel. He chose them. They would experience his blessings. But at the same time, they would experience his correction. They would experience his mercy. And because of God's mercy, because of his covenant, because of his promise to his people, the writer knew, God's got me. God got my back. Because God made a covenant that was signed, sealed, and settled. Back in Hebrews chapter 10, we don't have time to read all those verses, verses 9 to 25. Thank God for the covenant that was made when Jesus gave his blood on Calvary's cross to purchase our redemption. 
I am so glad for salvation. I'm so glad that I don't have to run around to do things to stay saved. I'm a child of God because a covenant that was made, that was signed, sealed, and settled. But as a result of being a child of God, I have to expect that this God is going to provide discipline. This God is going to chasten because whom he loves, he chastens. And what is our response? Our response is to respond appropriately to get on the right path. To recognize that God loves me. God wants to bless me. Here it is in the middle of discipline. God is saying, continue serving me because I got some blessings. I can't wait to just pour them out upon you and confound the naysayers and to be evidence of my continued mercy and grace upon your life. What a God. What love is this? That he laid down his life for you and me. And even after doing so, continue to shower us with blessings. Responding to the rod of correction, let us endeavor to respond appropriately. Let us never doubt the goodness of God. I know God is omniscient. But oftentimes I wonder if God says, hmm, my children seem to think I'm only good when good things happen. I was good yesterday, but something bad happened today and I'm no longer good. You know, sometimes you feel like that in ministry. (laughs) But God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. That's his character. That's who he is. And he says, when you understand who I am, when you know me personally, you'd recognize that even in the discipline, I'm doing it for your good. Because it has always been motivated by my love for you. Let us respond to the rod of correction by ensuring that we are on the right path and watch God do some amazing things in our lives.